This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Joan B. Kroc School of Peace Studies. The Kroc School is what we like to call the global hub for peace building and social innovation. Uh, and we're going to hear a lot about both of those things tonight. My name is Andrew Blum. I'm the executive director of the Institute for Peace and Justice here within the Kroc School. Um, at the Institute, uh, we're the bridge between theory and practice. Uh, we are, are dedicated to developing the learning needed to foster new and powerful approaches to ending cycles of violence and and building peace. Our speaker tonight is Shamal Idris, the CEO of Search for Common Ground. Um, Here at Kroc, as you've heard, we're committed to this idea of social innovation. And Shamal has been working on this social innovation space for years, maybe even before there was a name, maybe even before we called it social innovation. The first time I met Shamal, he was working for an organization called Salia that did groundbreaking work on building cultural exchange online in the digital space between Americans and youth in the Middle East. The organization he leads now, Search for Common Ground, is the leading peace-building organization in the world. I think that's safe to say. It has 59 offices around the world, and I just read on their website today, 800,000 participants move through their programs each year. So his organization truly has a global reach. His topic tonight is coming together and falling apart, how tech is impacting peace and conflict. This intersection of innovation, technology, and peace building is an area that's incredibly ripe with potential and much too devoid of actual content. Uh, And I think that's going to begin changing because I believe that this year in particular is a watershed year, uh, more so for the tech leadership uh, community than for peace builders. Uh, And I think that offers real hope for the future. We have in the room today, people who are going to be participating in the CalCon uh, event over the next couple of days, some real... Uh, ingenious change makers and, and innovators and people who've got great startup ideas on how to use technology for everything from early warning around electoral violence, participatory governance and participatory budgeting, uh, games for peace building, all kinds of extraordinary things. So I'm really inspired to have you all in, in the room. Uh, but you are much, much too much the exception today uh, than, than the norm. Um, and it really begs the question why there isn't more collaboration between the tech sector and the international peacebuilding field. Um, after all, if you care about peacebuilding, which is fundamentally about building relationships and transforming relationships, there's no better time in human history to be alive when more people than ever before are connected and we have, at least in theory, uh, the capacity to communicate and collaborate across boundaries that we never could before. Um, so why is there not more collaboration? Tonight, I want to talk about why I don't think there is been enough to date, uh, why I think there will be going forward, and some of the challenges and the opportunities that, uh, around which I think we can really collaborate and innovate um, across peace building and technology uh, sectors. Um, partnerships tend to work best across sectors when sector leaders see in the other sector 
uh, something that is mission critical. Uh, and I think increasingly, uh, people in the peacebuilding field, people in pretty much any field over the last 10 years, had begun to realize the critical importance and the value of leveraging technology because it's so transformed our world and has become so ubiquitous. On the other hand, I think the leadership from the tech sector, for the most part, has largely considered the engagement in peacebuilding as a philanthropic endeavor, not at all as mission critical. And I think that's beginning to change. And before going to some of the changes, I do need to acknowledge and, and really celebrate the, the philanthropy. Uh, philanthropy gets a bad name today because everyone's looking for market solutions to everything. Philanthropy is still a really extraordinary way of living out values in today's world. And we've seen some of the most extraordinary philanthropy, including to the peacebuilding field, coming out of the tech sector. eBay alone gave rise to the uh, Omidyar Network and foundations, to uh, Jeff Skoll and the Skoll Foundation and all the initiatives uh, that, that he and his institutions support. Uh, Search for Common Ground, my organization, has been a partner and beneficiary uh, of, of their support, uh, as well as the Bezos uh, Family Foundation. Um, um, but th this is, these are all philanthropic endeavors. Extraordinary, most welcome, hope they continue forever and grow, um, but quite different from the core business uh, of the expanding and incredibly successful tech sector. And I'm reminded a little bit of the, the extractives industry. You know, we at Search for Common Ground uh, and other peace-building organizations around the world are, are working increasingly with the extractives industry, the mining companies, the oil companies, etc. And you know you've made a, an important and significant shift when you have a relationship as we do uh, with one of the largest gold mining companies now in East Africa that shifts from their CSR, their Corporate Social uh, Responsibility Department, or their PR department, that shifts into their core business when they start supporting and engaging with you and partnering with you out of their community affairs and security department rather than just the PR department. That shift has not yet been accomplished uh, to, to, to an definite extent between the peacebuilding sector and the real giants in the, in the tech sector. I also want to give one other caveat, which is to recognize those people who are in the room who are at the forefront of this. Uh, I don't want to just focus on who's not here. We should really celebrate who is here because these are the pathfinders. C5 Capital, which has supported uh, the Peace Tech Accelerator at the U.S. Institute of Peace. One Earth Future, which has largely made this possible and is supporting a lot of research in, in this space and trying to really understand how we leverage uh, innovation and technology for the purposes of peace building. But I do want to ask, is there anybody from Facebook, Google, Amazon, Instagram, anyone here? No. So why are they not here? And, and, I, and, I, and why do I believe they are going to be here next year and in increasing, increasingly so going forward? Um, you know, Andrew commented on the reflective nature at the South by Southwest Festival. I've had a lot of conversations with tech leaders as we've been looking at how we integrate technology into our work around the world. Uh, and these all lead me to believe that there is really a, a ground shifting going on under the tech sector. Uh, but perhaps the most obvious and public manifestation of this is Mark Zuckerberg's letter in February to the Facebook community, the 5,700-word treatise that asserted that Facebook's mission going forward cannot simply be to connect people, but to create certain kinds of communities. What kinds of communities? Supportive communities, informed communities, safe communities, civically engaged communities, and inclusive communities. This could have been a mission statement out of any one of a number of organizations that I've worked for or that I lead now. Um, 
And, and it, it really represents something, I think, that is much more profound than a marketing statement. I certainly hope that it does, not just for Facebook, but for the tech sector more generally. Uh, it goes without saying, but I will say it, that creating those kinds of communities is exactly what leadership in the peace-building field actually knows something about, knows a lot about. Um, and I think it needs to be stated and restated because we sometimes look at the world and think that it's uh, going to hell. I think it's quite important to recognize the fact that the investments that were made in the conflict resolution and peace-building architecture after the Second World War have been, by pretty much any measure, extraordinarily successful extraordinarily successful in reducing the number of deaths in real numbers and per capita uh, and in reducing interstate conflicts, uh, violent conflicts. Um, the UN and all the similar machinery is struggling mightily to deal with modern manifestations of conflict, which now are not just interstate, but substantially are made up of interstate conflicts, uh, poor governance, uh, stateless extremist movements, and all other kinds of matters that governments alone simply cannot handle. But it, it does bear remembering that that sector has been quite successful, um, and, and, uh, and we should not uh, um, forget that. Um, now, why is 2017 a watershed year? I think here in the States, uh, but this is having reverberations because Silicon Valley has global reverberations, I think the 2016 election and how the campaigns played out has had a, a profound impact. There's a lot more discussion now within the tech sector of particularly the phenomenon of filter, filter bubbles. You know, are people, are, are, are the algorithms that Google uses to give you information, are those algorithms keeping you only informed by those sources that uh, reinforce your pre-existing worldviews? Um, because you've clicked on them before, so you're going to continue to be get, getting fed them. Uh, Facebook, when Facebook introduced the news feed, Facebook really transformed from the largest social network ever to history's largest source of information. Um, and therefore, the fake news phenomenon, which really came to the fore in the US with the last elections, really has shaken, I think, the, the foundation of, of people on Facebook's notions of the impact that they're having in the world. Uh, I had the honor to work with some of the bravest peace builders you'll ever meet in Burundi uh, shortly after the Civil War there. And fake news there, fake news was all just as prevalent uh, at that time. Fake news was used incredibly effectively to foment genocide in Rwanda. But we're now seeing it on a global scale through some of these platforms. And so this has started to shake the foundation uh, in the tech sector of, of the self-image, of the positive impact that connectivity alone can have. And more generally, the reduction in trust and social cohesion that we're seeing around the world. Again, if you look at the U.S. alone, you know, in, in, in peace building, we look at sort of vertical cohesion and horizontal cohesion. You can cut it a lot of different ways, but horizontal cohesion is sort of the, the set of relationships, trust, cooperation across communities, across demographics, between Republicans and Democrats, between people of different races, people of different religious uh, identities, people of different ethnicities. And you look in the United States, the Southern Poverty Law Center has uh, tracked a, an, uh, an increase in enrollment in hate groups, uh, a doubling over the last 20 years in the US alone. And then you look at vertical cohesion. What's the, what's the quality of relationships and trust between citizens and the institutions that govern and serve them? Uh, and other than the military, pretty much every institution uh, in the US right now is at near historic lows in terms of citizens' trust in those institutions. Congress, police, media sources, even religious institutions. Um, and trust and cohesion are sort of the fundamental building blocks of any functioning society, certainly a functioning democracy. Um, and we see 
very similar dynamics worldwide in the growth in identity-based nationalist politics and extremism. Um, this is why the title of the talk is Coming Together and Falling Apart, because we're more connected than ever before, but boy, are we struggling to come together across some of our dividing lines here at home and around the world. Now, importantly, that polarization is happening at exactly the moment in human history when we arguably need more collaboration than ever before. And again, I go back to Zuckerberg's letter. He starts it by rightly pointing out that if we're going to solve any of the major problems that we have today, we're going to have to generate cooperation. Cooperation oftentimes around across traditional dividing lines. Um, you can't deal with climate change if only a few nations uh, take, take action. You can't deal with nuclear nonproliferation. You can't deal with any of the big issues before us if you're not able to generate cooperation between nations, between peoples, between the public and private sector, across cultures. So he got that, I think, quite, quite right as the starting point for his letter. And so I want to just sort of share with you three barriers that I see to greater tech sector leadership in this space, uh, where I also think peace builders have a great deal to offer and can maybe show, show the pathway to tech leaders. Um, I have to say that I'm, as I say this, I'm, I'm going to have to acknowledge I'm really an outsider to the tech sector. I talk to a lot of them. I learn a lot from them. Uh, I'm near a Luddite. I'm, I'm, I'm technically inept. Um, but I want to share three of the barriers that I see looking from the outside at this field, and then three lessons that I want to pull out from the peacebuilding sector that suggest some questions around which I think if the tech sector and the peacebuilding uh, communities came together and began to innovate together, we could tackle some of the world's biggest problems to unprecedented effect. First, the barriers. Um, again, from an outsider perspective, there's the near all-consuming focus on service to and faith in individual preferences and appetites above all else in the tech sector. The notion that connectivity alone will lead to good things, that making more immediately available to people every appetite and passion. Uh, do you want something? Uh, you can buy it right now. If you see something that stirs your emotions, you can share it with a click. Um, you go on YouTube, the motto is broadcast yourself, um, that somehow this will lead to a better informed, happier, healthier communities. Uh, and to be fair to the major companies in the tech sector, it's not, it hasn't really been any of their missions to create fairer, safer uh, worlds. So that needs to be acknowledged up front. However, when pressed on the social impact of uh, the revolution in, in technology and interactive media technologies in particular, social media platforms, et cetera, uh, the default has oftentimes been we're empowering individuals, and empowering individuals at scale will ultimately have a very positive effect. And it, it reminds me, when I went to high school, I took a, there, was a, there was a course my senior year in high school that only seniors were allowed to take, and it was a philosophy class with this great teacher. Uh, and and, and we, read, we spent the whole semester on Plato's Republic. Um, and he started it by saying, none of you are smart enough to challenge Plato, so you're going to spend the whole semester trying to understand him. And then if you, if you get excited about him, then go to college and study again, and you can start asking a lot more questions. So it was his way of challenging us. But I remember, I'll never forget, it was the first time, you know, when Plato talks about the, the, the best forms of governance, right? And, and I don't remember them all now. I'm sorry to say. But I do remember that democracy was sort of the last rung before anarchy. And it was the first time I had seen anybody talk about democracy as anything other than fantastic and the best obvious form of government. Um, and I think a similar kind of challenge needs to be brought uh, to the question of, of, of enabling personal preference and, and appealing to base desires uh, on a mass scale as somehow something that's going to bring positive results for, for those individuals or people at large. Um, the second uh, barrier, I think, which really kind of informs the first, is the preoccupation with scale above all else. 
Um, the best way to reach scale is certainly not to encourage people to experience discomfort. Um, discomfort and uncertainty happen to be usually pretty critical elements of any educational experience or any experience that allows you to really develop as a human being or a citizen in a diverse society, let alone a diverse world. Um, and it's, you know, it's interesting that, that you know, I was thinking about this uh, just before I came out. It might not work for you, but uh, as I was thinking about sort of the multilateral system that's been so effective in dealing with, with wars you know, since, the, since World War II and trying to prevent war, and advance all the kinds of the development agenda. That system, and the UN probably is the biggest marker of that system, developed in ex almost the exact inverse way as the, as the tech sector exploded. You know, uh, you, people came together across great differences to first figure out what kind of society do we want to live in. Read the UN Charter. This is the, these are the values that we're going to try and promulgate that don't exist today, but that we're going to stand for together. And now we're going to figure out how to connect all the players that are critical to creating that kind of society. Uh, they stayed mainly at the government sector because back in those days, governments were seen as the be-all and end-all to drive that change. And we now know that that's, especially in today's world, woefully inadequate, and governments are really limited, and you need the private sector, and you need individual citizens, etc. But it sort of came as sort of establishing that kind of society first, and now let's connect everyone who can make that happen. Whereas the tech sector exploded by trying to connect everyone and essentially figuring, when asked, that community norms and values would kind of work themselves out along, along the way. Both are falling short now. The main institutions of peace building are really struggling to deal with modern manifestations of conflict. And the tech industry is getting better and better at connecting everyone, but realizing that the results of that connectivity are often not so good for society, actually. Um, and at the intersection of these two sit citizen peace builders, who are both users of these platforms and technologies, uh, and experts in what it takes to help create and facilitate the emergence of certain kinds of communities. It would be helpful, I think, if we found out what produces profound impact online, what produces profound change in a positive direction for individuals or communities online, and then try to scale that, rather than try to scale the participation and then figure out how we turn it into something positive for mankind. And the third barrier that I want to raise is that as the tech sector reflects and determines whether or how to embrace a commitment to foster certain kinds of community, and again, Zuckerberg's letter put it right out there. These are the kinds of communities that we want. And I want to, and I, I think he should be celebrated for that because he's been attacked like crazy for, for all kinds of reasons. But I think it's a very positive uh, step. But as the tech sector sort of figured out, okay, so how are we going to, as those who stepped out and said, we want to actually create a certain kind of community, how are we going to do it? I think there's a notion that they're facing uh, a choice, which is actually, I think, a false choice. And I think peace building, the peace building community globally understands that this is a false choice. The false choice is that on the one hand, you can be impartial, sort of neutral, and irrelevant, right? The Pepsi ad recently that got some of you could sort of say, sort of, I didn't think that was the worst thing in the world. I just thought it was really inconceived and ineffectual. But uh, impartial and irrelevant, having no teeth or anything relevant to say. Or you can be relevant but alienating. And nobody wants to be alienating when you're running a company that's trying to connect everybody around the world or to draw people uh, to your platform. Uh, I believe citizen. Uh, peace builders offer ways and a track record of how to be relevant and powerful without being alienating. Of demonstrating the kind of change that makes allies out of adversaries, building relationships to drive change that really sticks. Because in, a, in, a, in, a, in an interconnected and interdependent world, win-lose approaches, this adversarial approach to social change, ultimately leads lose-lose outcomes. Um, 
As for the three lessons from the peacebuilding field that I want to share with you, uh, the first really come out of, there are a couple things in the first time I want to share that we've learned from the virtual exchange programming uh, that Andrew uh, mentioned in his introduction to me, uh, where we uh, really sort of experimented with different ways of using interactive media technologies to connect young people across the U.S., Western Europe, and Muslim-majority countries for in-depth facilitated dialogue that would really seek to transform their attitudes towards one another and increase their cross-cultural empathy and collaboration and communication skills. Um, we've had great success with this programming. It ultimately is, it was the basis for which, as Andrew mentioned, uh, we advocated for the establishment of a new category of funding um, uh, called virtual exchange funding. And President Obama in 2015 announced the first dedicated fund for virtual exchange. And now the European Union, which is the world's largest funder of exchanges, has also followed suit. That's great. We can connect more people than ever before uh, to have a, a profound cross-cultural experience. But we learned two things from the neuroscience uh, team with whom we worked to evaluate the impact of this programming. And it was something that our facilitators, because every one of these dialogue groups is facilitated by people who have to go through more than 20 hours of training from us to get in that room and facilitate these small online video conference dialogue sessions. We learned that the critical threshold for people to pass through, the, the the, the radically critical threshold for people to pass through in order to become more open to engaging with difference is not the experience of being agreed with by the other side. It's the experience of being heard and respected by the other side, especially when you say something that you anticipate you're going to get shut down for. So when you know, every semester we run this program and someone says or people say, I don't think extremism or terrorism is a fringe phenomenon in your society. I think your religion is violent. Or somebody else says, I don't think the September 11th attacks happened the way you think they did. I think your government organized them. And these are actually quite mainstream views across these societies, but they don't get surfaced. They certainly don't get surfaced in conversation with people and facilitated dialogue with people. And what we found is that when the reaction to that is not to shut them down, but as people saying, I completely disagree with you, I'm even maybe hurt a little bit by what you just said, but I need to understand where you're coming from. Did you have a personal experience that led you to think that way? Uh, what are you worried about that means you're so scared of my community, whatever it might be? The shift that happens after that exchange every single time leads to a completely different kind of group interaction for all of the sessions after that. One where people ask more questions. One where people begin to acknowledge that maybe their communities are, have something to do with the negative dynamics that are going on. Um, and, and, and that's a profound shift. So one of the questions I think it would be very interesting to noodle over with tech uh, investors and tech leaders is how do you scale up for people the experience of being heard and respected genuinely? And how do we diversify and vastly expand the number of people who are actually willing to hear and respect views with which they disagree? These are not tech-only challenges. These are human challenges. Uh, but in the tech sector where this connectivity is being uh, fueled and supported, I think there might be real insights. Um, the second thing, uh, insight from the peacebuilding field that I want to share, is uh, to really segment off in people's minds this notion that peacebuilding is one of many good causes. You know, that you've got peacebuilding, and then you've got climate change, and poverty eradication, and disease eradication. Uh, that's one way to think of peacebuilding. And even if you think of it in that way, I would argue that peacebuilding is issue number one. Um, because I think without stable societies and security societies, all other uh, measures of development, human development, go to zero. Um, and in fact, once violence breaks out, 
on a scale like we're seeing in Syria today or Yemen or elsewhere, those measures all go to zero sometimes for a full generation with the trauma and the infrastructure destruction and everything else that, that happens as a result. But I think more central and more accurate of what our field has to offer and that I think the tech sector and tech leadership really should be thinking about and engaging with us around is the reality that in an interconnected world, this default to adversarial approaches to change does not work. Uh, at best, you yield one side winning for a short period of time while the other side licks its wounds and mobilizes to overcome you. We're seeing this in spades in this country and in countries around, around the world. Um, much more profound is understanding that there are different approaches to social change. And in fact, the most profound and effective approach to social change today in an interconnected world is an approach that starts by seeking the issue, identifying the issue that you care most about, but instead of taking a next step of finding everyone who agrees with you, everyone who disagrees with you, and going to war, um, you ask the question, who are all the stakeholders who are going to be affected by the outcome of this, by how this plays out, whether it's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or it's the climate change uh, issue or whatever it might be, and finding ways to get into relationship with all of those players and begin initiating dialogue and discussion and problem-solving and cooperation across those barriers. It takes a lot more patience, but the results you get at the other end stick much longer. I had the, the pleasure about a month ago of, of meeting Bono, and I like his music, but the thing I was most excited to meet with him about, if, you, if you've never read the story, um, it's in The Guardian, but it's been told elsewhere, about how Bono engaged with the arch-conservative senator from North Carolina who passed years ago now, Jesse Helms, on the issue of debt relief in Africa. It's one of the best examples of this collaborative approach to social change that you'll see, especially from celebrities. Not because there's anything wrong with celebrities, but celebrities tend to take shortcuts because they're leveraging their celebrity. But Bono spent hours getting to know Jesse Helms, meeting with him in private. He refused to listen to his guitarist, The Edge, and other people who urged him to please stop. Um, he talked with Helms and asked some questions and learned what was important to him. He shared what was important to him. They talked about um, the Bible and the values that they took out of the, the Bible. At one point, uh, Helms reported uh, breaking down and crying. And Helms' decision to ultimately become one of the lead champions for debt relief in Africa um, came directly out of that kind of interchange, right? So I don't want to give Bono credit for debt relief in Africa, but one of the things that's interesting, I'd like to give him some, but one of the things that's interesting is if you look at the kind of support for debt relief, for PEPFAR, the things that have really endured across the partisan divides in this country, uh, those issues that came out of that approach to social change have endured as well as any other uh, uh, investments in, in social good that come out of this country. Um, so what question does that raise for us? How do you incentivize and enable the creation of communities around some of our bigger challenges? In his letter, Zuckerberg puts a lot on the fact that Facebook should now be focusing not just on how many people are connected, how soon are they going to hit 2 billion, and then how quickly can they get to 4 billion, but are they enabling people to create meaningful communities? How do you gauge a meaningful community? Well, one way to gauge a meaningful community uh, and I believe one of the ways that is looked at is, you know, a community that people spend a certain amount of time on. I think the much more interesting way to gauge a meaningful community is uh, what are the issues and problems which, if solved, could make life better for everybody? And how can the tech sector and the peace-building community work together to foster meaningful communities on some of our biggest problems that bridge those divides and enable collaboration across those dividing lines? The third and final lesson that I want to share out of the peace-building field, uh, and this is a real challenge, and this is one of the areas where I think when you're looking at scale, uh, particularly at the scale that the tech sector oftentimes look at, looks at scale, 
billions, right, um, is a real challenge to, to explore. Is the critical and irreplaceable role, irreplaceable role of the mediator or facilitator. If we are going to wait on the major pressing issues of the day for all the parties on that conflict, especially the ones who have hurt each other or totally disagree with each other or are offended by one another, to voluntarily decide that they want to come together to tackle that issue, we're never going to get there. Um, and the, the, you know, I think every generation thinks their problems are the biggest. Uh, I, I, I get that. But you know, we have a history, human history, of not achieving breakthroughs until we have breakdowns. And we cannot afford a breakdown on nuclear nonproliferation. We can't afford a breakdown on pandemics the way they would spread today. We can't afford uh, a, a breakdown on any one uh, of the major issues that, that, that confront us. And so we've got to find a much more proactive and aggressive way um, uh, to try and facilitate cooperation on these issues. And the only way that I can think of is to have uh, some investment and growth in the talent and the capacity of facilitators and mediators. They are all over the world. One thing that anyone here who's worked in peace building knows is when you look for these people, you find them everywhere. You find them in war zones. You find them in... You find, Look in your family. There's some natural bridge builder who, when your mother and her sister want to kill each other, that person steps in. It's, and uh, and, uh, and without being trite about it, you know, been, there's more investment now. We've seen, you know, Facebook's been creating some uh, partnerships a, a, a around uh, with news sources and to try and create some editorial eye to, to sort of prevent the fake news proliferation. There needs to be a similar an, a investment, at least, in, in the capacity and, and, and that facilitators bring to try and deal with some of these problems. What do they do? They help to frame issues in ways that everyone can come to the table, you know, um, because they listen, first and foremost, to everyone's interests and what's driving and motivating them, right? Um, they help communities to establish and form some of the norms, right? The ground rules for how they're going to engage with one another and help the community to, to enforce those norms. Um, but perhaps most importantly, uh, and I think this is the uncomfortable truth, but it has to be said, they're the ones that hold the vision until the parties themselves take it over. That sounds soft, but that's the critical piece. They're the ones who are saying, I see a, a divide that could bring this entire community down between the police and the youth, or between you know, black and white, or Muslim and Jewish, or whatever, and I'm going to engage proactively to try and bridge those divides and bring those communities together. And at some point in that process, if it's successful, the community themselves takes it over from that mediator or facilitator. Any successful mediator or facilitator will tell you that. Um, so there needs to be, I think, the question with the tech sector of how do we enable and empower those natural mediators and facilitators? What products, what plugins to the most used uh, platforms that we have? Uh, what tools, what kind of innovation can support uh, and really elevate the influence uh, of that kind of mediator and facilitator community? So I just want to end by saying, I think, you know, if, if if leadership in the tech sector begins to get explicit about the kind of communities uh, that they want to help uh, create, uh, as Zuckerberg has, um, and is willing to listen to some of the lessons that peace builders have of how we've been able to create those kinds of communities in the physical world, we could then have, I think, an incredibly generative and innovative collaboration uh, on how to leverage these technologies to much greater peace building effect, which will help everybody in the world. And what I'm excited about uh, is not just that letter, but a lot of the conversations I've had and the reflection at South by Southwest that Andrew talked about. Uh, I think for the first time since this explosion uh, of, of tech platforms and innovations, I think leadership in the tech sector and tech innovators and investors are, are really beginning to see that this actually is mission critical. It's not just a philanthropic endeavor.
Thanks very much. The place I wanted to start, because of you know, talking about the online space, your experience with Celia, this, this work you've done on sort of online facilitation and, and uh, moderation, what do you see as the fundamental difference in our communication online versus in person? Because a, pe- a lot of folks would still say, you know, you need that face-to-face contact. Is there a fundamental difference? How do you, how do you think about the, the nature of communication online versus yeah. face-to-face? Um, anonymity doesn't help a whole lot uh, with humanizing communication. People can be a lot nastier to each other and they're anonymous. Um, the, the fact that we use a, a web video conferencing platform for these young people to actually see one another is really quite important. Um, uh, and I think it does have uh, a, moderating inf- a moderating influence on what they will uh, talk about. Uh, what we've seen, and, and we, we train our facilitators uh, you know, uh, pretty intensively, um, uh, they more often have to support people to say what they're really thinking than they are having to rein back in a bomb thrower who said something nasty. Once you get people sort of facing one another and getting to know one another a little bit, um, uh, the, the tendency is to want to be liked and, and to not disrupt generally. And so more often than not, much more often than not, what we find is people are being very, whether you want to use the term politically correct or not. And so our facilitators work quite hard uh, to steer the conversations into the curb a little bit, as we say. Not in a hugely provocative or unfair way, but when you see, uh, when you see somebody kind of want to say something but not. Um, and, and, and so I think that's the, um, I think anonymity doesn't help. Uh, I also think in, in conflict resolution processes generally, it helps a whole heck of a lot you know, to get to know something about somebody and form some connections with somebody before you start talking about the issue that make most makes your blood boil across the dividing lines. The the Connect program for us goes over eight sessions, two hours a week for for eight weeks. The first session, we start with identity games, all all different kinds of identity games. Think of three things that that identify who you are. They can be silly or profound to you. They could be the fact that you're a Yankee fan. They could be the fact that you're uh, Muslim. They could be the fact that you have six sisters, whatever it is. Uh, And then uh, drop two of those uh, and and hold on to one that you want to share with this group. Now we're going to go around and, and share three that you had, and why did you hold on to the one that you held on to today? Understanding that tomorrow you might pick a different one. Uh, and what we find through that kind of process is people make all kinds of connections that they might not have expected. And that makes it much more likely that the next day and the next day after that, uh, uh, when, they, when the difficult issues do come up, um, they form some sort of level, at least baseline of respect and interest in one another. And I think that exists that's all, uh, you need that in the physical space, you need that in the online space. How do you create that in the online space? Is there an automated way to create that on the online space? We'd, looked at, we'd love to uh, experiment more in that space, but right now it's, it's vitally important to have good facilitation. I wanted to also pick up on something you said about that vertical, that vertical piece, that citizen engagement, engagement with, uh, with the government, because I do think a lot of people still see peace building as this intergroup, as relationship building, that horizontal piece. What do you see as the most promising applications for tech in that sort of citizen engagement space? Or, you know, what are the new ideas emerging in that space that I really think, you know, us peace builders are realizing is, is equally important to the horizontal? Yeah, we're seeing, and I think there's some of these ideas are, are sitting around the room here. People have some startups and uh, where um, there, there's some 
uh, that are, are uh, helping uh, register voters um, uh, through uh, social media platforms. Uh, there are some apps and, and, and applications of technology um, that are uh, trying to ensure that uh, elections come off uh, safely. And, and, and uh, there are some that, that enable uh, citizen participation in budgeting processes for municipalities or whatever it might be that therefore gives them the real feeling and the reality of, of having their voice heard. Um, there are others that, that enable uh, elected officials, uh, or even if they're not elected, officials that are responsible for local governance uh, to be in more, more, con more regular and constant communication and getting much more regular feedback from uh, local communities. Um, there hasn't been, in my view yet, enough um, that, that is applied to, um, for instance, the political process here in the lead up to elections. Um, uh, there are all kinds of formats I'd love to see beyond just let's get a, let's take a question off of Facebook or let's take a question off of Twitter. That's fine, but um, it would be really nice to see some approaches that that experiment with different uh, dialogue rather than simply adversarial debate uh, styles. Um, so there's a lot I think going on uh, in that space in the peace building sector. I, I would say uh, it is really a I mean here too all change at least from my perspective, it starts with relationships. And that includes if you're trying to change a ministry of justice uh, or a police force uh, uh, or, or whatever it might be. Um, we had, I'll tell you quickly a story, and this is, I tell you this because it's illustrative. And, and there are other, and you know, I love my organization, but there, you know, international alert, conciliation resources, safer world, interpeace, so the number of organizations that just as good work, um, but you know, in, in Nepal years ago, um, you know, the police and the youth, there were you know, fights in the streets uh, all the time. The youth were throwing rocks, and the police were in a very heavy-handed manner coming down on them. And a survey was done of uh, the attitudes of the, the population towards the police. And not surprisingly, the results were, you know, we hate them, basically. And the results were publicized which really embarrassed the police and, and, uh, and made them much less likely to want to work with any citizen-led groups uh, in a similar fashion. And uh, we had a, a, a director at that time um, it was who, who was a former real youth leader himself, had a lot of credibility with youth groups in, in Nepal. And he went uh, to the police leadership and he said, you know, we'd like to do a survey too, but we'd, we'd like to co-create it with you first of all, and we'll only release the results if you're comfortable with, with us doing so. So, okay, on that, the whole purpose here is to try take a step towards improving relations. And the only thing that the police was kind of sweet, what they asked to, to they only added two questions to the survey that, that our team had created. One was around what resources do people think that the police actually have? Because there were all kinds of unrealistic expectations. Uh, and in some places, the police, you know, had, had like a bicycle. And people expected. The other was the sweet one. It was, it was you know, is there anything you would the police for, right? And of course, the, the response was still like 70% no. But there was the 30% yes. That provided the basis uh, for some other things that turned into some soccer tournaments we did between the police and youth groups on the weekends. Um, that ultimately morphed into a partnership that we now have with the police uh, force in Kathmandu to support their rollout of a community policing approach across the whole city that is being manifested increasing, interestingly enough, in one way through a reality television show uh, that we, uh, that, that we uh, um, broadcast this past year, uh, young people who want to into the police force, but they have to demonstrate community policing skills uh, in order to do that. They get voted on. Or, you know. So what does that all say? That whole thing, when you look at vertical cohesion, when you look at the relationship between a citizen and a, and, and a governing institution, all that started by 
of facilitating, somebody who saw their role as a facilitator, understanding what was important to the parties, and uh, they could start cooperating with one another, even if something as seemingly silly as a soccer match. And in really divided societies where you have polarization and violence, um, it might be, seem really off topic. That's the only thing you can get them to do together. But if done well over time, that really makes a profound shift. So in the tech sector, I think, how do you, you, know, how do you enable those things to happen? Um, you know, th- th- these things take time, especially when, when trust has been really depleted. They don't come in one-off events. And so how do you create, um, uh, how do you use technology to facilitate the kind of building of those relationships and the generation of that cooperation over time? Uh, and I haven't seen a lot in that space because it's a tricky problem. Um, you know, I mentioned that you work in 59 spots around the world or have 59 offices around the world. Um, many of these places, there's very little infrastructure, um, maybe, not, you know, maybe no tech infrastructure. You know, where are we in, in this question of, you know, can you have these tech-based solutions in some of the places where where conflict are the worst? Are, are we moving past that challenge? Are we, yeah, you know, and, and then how do, you, how do you manage that challenge, you know, and, and, and using some of these tools? Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing for us is that really what these local teams do uh, is really determined by them. So, I mean, we work very hard to, to build and support local teams that themselves represent the dividing lines in the community, and then really encouraging and supporting them to apply this sort of mad scientist approach to peace building, kind of try whatever might work in a local context within the parameters of a do-no-harm. But you'll know if a soccer match is the right thing to do or if that's just going to lead to people you know, fighting on the pitch. Um, so, so that's the first. So we listen first to the community. So in answer to your question, um, it's interesting. In, in a lot of the places where we work, uh, leveraging of technology is not at all a high. You know, we went through a whole strategic review last year, and a lot of places where we worked didn't even register as something that was remotely interesting to people. And um, I have to say, I mean, it's some pretty innovative people, so it's not lack of creativity for the most part. I think it does reflect uh, somewhat this digital divide. Um, uh, having said that, I think uh, I think it's now nearly half of the world's 7.5 billion people have internet access. Um, the majority of those are in developing countries, although a very small, a very small number of them, relatively, I think it was 90 million or something less I saw, uh, uh, are in the least developed countries. Uh, so just in terms of internet penetration and access, um, you know, we're not there yet, but wow, we're pretty far, and every year it's just more. So, um, and this is a space I think for those, and at least for us in our field, my assumption is, you know, there are big companies that are or trying to expand this for all their own reasons, it's going to happen, and, uh, and it's just getting more and more. So I wouldn't say that we're past it, because if you look at what, um, in, in a lot of the places where we work, people have really been using and looking to. Um, technology doesn't even, you know, it's, it's issue number 15 uh, out of 15. Um, um, but it's, it's, getting, it's, it's, it's just more every year. Last question I'm going to ask. I, I did want to follow up on this issue of, you know, peace building being mission critical and, and getting to the core business of these larger tech firms. I mean, the way that happens is, you know, I would assume uh, it impacts their bottom line. It impacts their ability uh, to grow. Um, I mean, maybe drawing on your experience in, in the extractive industries. I, I wonder if you could just say more about, um, you know, not just 
Mark Zuckerberg's letter, but really if you think about the core yeah. business of these organizations, how does this push forward their, their business proposition? I think there's a real concern. Uh, and, and, and the, 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 I think there's ones get really big. They, they get a lot of questions from the user base about is there a hidden agenda here? What's your hidden agenda? Whether it's around privacy issues or it's around what kind of community. How are you going to handle the news feed? How are you going to, you know? Uh, and so I, I think, um, uh, you know, I, I highlighted his letter because, A, it's Facebook and they're huge. I think they're 1.95 billion now. Um, uh, but also he put that out there in an extraordinary way, which uh, you would only do that, uh, you know, if, if, if you thought it was actually quite, quite important uh, to the company. And they are making investments now to try and limit fake news. And they're, they're searching how to make their five kinds of communities real. Um, um, so I think... Uh, first, I think there's a, a concern, um, uh, there's a recognition that the impact, the way that some of these tools are being used is really detrimental. Um, um, I think, uh, second, I think there's a concern with being seen as having a hidden agenda, so better to actually get out there and say proactively, this is what we stand for, these are the kinds of things, and interactions, the kind of information we want people to be able to have access to um, that, is, that, that, that is important to them. Um, and I don't think it's, you know, it's, when you look at the really big ones, it's hard to think that they have much competition from anyone uh, right now. Um, but I, you know, I, I think the events of the last year have shaken a, a lot of people. And I do think it needs to be said, most of that sector, I think, comes, the leadership of that sector for the large part, in, in this country anyway, is on the political left. And the political left lost. And, uh, and I think even if you look at the discussion of filter bubbles, that is much more an issue that's talked about on the left in this country than on the right. Um, because I think it comes out of somewhat of a recognition of, oh, wait, maybe we're actually much more out of touch than we thought we were with whole kinds of segments of society. So I think part of it is also generated from um, where the leadership of that sector sits that they have about, uh, about whether they're, they're serving the numbers that they could be. I think that's a, a great place uh, to leave it. Um, the many folks in the room, Shamal himself, we have a two days coming up with, with CalCon. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks again to the One Earth Future Foundation for, for being our partner with this, helping get Shamal here, which for what was a, a great discussion. So thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.